The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, this is Alexis Haynes, and welcome to Recovering from Reality, where I illuminate the messy and magical path of coming home to yourself. Whether you're on the road to recovery, seeking self-care techniques for surviving the capitalist machine, or just need a moment to remember that you're not alone in your loneliness, we're serving up the ultimate truth. Your challenges don't define you. How you deal with them does. So, are you ready to recover from reality? You can always find people to tell you that your terrible thoughts are true. But, like, if you were punching yourself in the face, literally, your friends wouldn't be like, keep going. That's good. <laughs> that looks good. Right? <laughs> but when but we emotionally punch ourselves unnecessarily and, our, and we think that it's supportive to validate, right? And I think that part of the reason we get so caught in that and we get so caught in our stories about other people doing us wrong is that we think the only option, we believe something bad has happened. See, this is what's wrong with believing things are truly bad, quote unquote. If something bad happened, then someone has to be to blame. And we think it has to be the other person or it has to be us, right? And so I think that's partly why we get so attached to our stories, like about our parents or about whoever is because we're like, well, this suffering happened, this bad thing happened. If a bad thing happened, who are we going to blame for the bad thing? If I don't believe it's them, then I'm subconsciously worried it was me. Like, I was the problem. So I have to believe they were the problem. And, like, the only way out of that back-and-forth trap that I have found is to be at least contemplate the possibility that nothing, that what happened That it just that. is. That it just, just is. is. That was a quick clip from this week's episode with Kara Lowenthal. And I've got an interesting intro for you guys today. So when I initially recorded this episode, it was during a much simpler time. In New York City, I flew out there to record with a few guests and to do the morning toast. And I had a great experience. But I will say when I left this podcast recording and bear with me here. I didn't feel good. It triggered the fuck out of me. It made me angry. I felt resentful and overall just icky inside. And it's interesting because I have a totally different feeling about it now. And it wasn't until recently that I was reminded that I even had this episode in my queue to go. It's like the episode happened and I was like, I just want to pretend that that never happened and I want to move on. That's what it was like. And it's interesting the way that everything always transpires in perfect timing. So in this episode, Cara and I are having an epic, awesome discussion. I'm totally vibing with her. And then we start talking about basically about our perception of reality. Our perception of reality is essentially, and all of our memories are just, you know, experiences banked, right? Based off of our perception. And when we have really strong feelings about the things that have occurred in our life or in this world, the things that we might be currently experiencing, it shapes the way that we view life. Are you with me? I hope so. So 
Kara is talking about an experience with, say, you have a boss and that boss is really challenging and you feel really strongly that you are objectively right and that others should agree with me. And, you know, all that does is make us feel angry and disempowered, right? So you go to work, your boss is a total dick to you and you sit there and you just go down the rabbit hole of, oh, another shitty boss, another shitty day. I can't stand working here, right? All it does is like poison us and it really disempowers us. And so Kara's solution that she suggests here is seeing things neutrally, right? Of it's like, it's not good or bad. It's removing the emotional pull, right? That we experience in our realities, in our day-to-day life. And if you think about it, if we were able to do this objectively all the time, right? Then when that person cut us off on the road, we wouldn't flip out on them. When, you know, that mom cuts in front of you at the drop-off line (laughs) by pulling in a legal left turn, and I'm talking from experience, you're, you know, and your kid's almost late for school, you're not like, oh, fuck you, you know? (laughs) If you didn't see things as like good or bad and just sort of neutral, life would be a much better place, right? And so then, of course, I'm sitting there and I'm agreeing and I'm I'm here for it. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, as I was writing my book, um, you know, I was going through you know, my experience, my interpretation of reality, my memory bank, right? The little images and sounds and thoughts that I have in my head that produce the story of my life. And I recognize that the more neutral that I could be about most of these things, the more compassion I had, the more I set myself free, the more power I had. Then I said, yeah, but I mean, there are truly terrible things. Like we can agree that the sexual abuse that I incurred as a child is terrible. And this is where it starts to get really tricky. And I'm going to save it for the episode. I don't need to do a full breakdown, right, of this this experience. But if you guys are a regular listener to Recovering from Reality, then you must have heard the incredible episode with um, Shaman Durek. And I will say that in the last several months, especially, I've been peeling back the layers, you guys. I have been doing so much spiritual work, taking such a deep dive into my psyche, shedding all that no longer serves me and really stepping into my ultimate power. It has not been easy. It's been really scary sometimes, but overall, it's been been an incredible experience. But you'll recall if you listen to that episode with Shaman Durek um, that there is one part where I talk about how I'm grateful for all of my experiences, right? I'm grateful for my addiction, for my parents' divorce, for the alcoholism that ran through my family. You know, I, I wouldn't change a thing and I truly feel that. I believe that. I believe that when we were incarnated here on this planet, for whatever reason, that our souls have an evolution, a growth. And 
and that things are going to come our way that we need to experience in order to achieve whatever our purpose is here, right? And I said something along the lines of, and while while my sexual abuse was terrible and Shaman Durek ever so gently asked if I could stop right there and if he could challenge me to something. And I said, well, sure, you can challenge me. And he said, I want you to ask yourself, I want you to close your eyes and I want you to take a deep breath. And I literally get chills up my spine when I do this because this experience was truly so profound for me and set me free from years and years of emotional turmoil that I was putting myself through by holding on to these feelings and resentments and memories. And he said, I want to ask you, is what happened to you when you were five truly terrible? And I sat there and I closed my eyes and I began to weep. (laughs) And I can feel the emotions right now, but now it feels more like freedom then it felt like a release. And my answer at first was yes. And then I heard a stronger voice that said no. What's truly terrible is that the girl that was abused didn't have the support she needed to get through it. What's terrible was society's uh, programming that led me to believe that I was dirty not capable, not safe, that the world was scary and evil. That's what's truly terrible. And then if I can zoom out a little bit further and bear with me here, because this is important, I could see how that experience, while painful, really allowed me to become who I am today. It allowed me to step into my power. It allowed me to truly be free and to be who I am. It allowed me to see from a different lens. And in that moment, all of the pain and suffering from that experience left my physical body. I kid you not. And so while these thoughts might seem radical at first. I'm just here to share my experience. I'm also all about accountability. As you all know, it's part of being in recovery. And so I feel like I do owe Kara an apology of sorts because she was so generous um, to come on the podcast and to tell us her story and to educate us and to share her wisdom. And I just wasn't ready for it yet. So I shut it down and wanted to pretend like it didn't exist, but it does. And so I, I hope there's no hard feelings and I'm sorry it took me this long to get here. Let's see, that was February, August. So we're six months later that we're airing this episode. But It's all perfect, you know, the way that this transpired. At least, you know, I believe that I needed to share this experience with you all so you all 
can maybe set yourselves free from something that might be holding you back today. And so right now I'm choosing to send you all so much love and light. I have my hand over my chest and my heart space is open, radiating green, beautiful love and light to each and every one of you. Trusting and knowing that you were meant to be here hearing this right now as a sign that it's time to drop the bags, that it's okay to set yourself free, that you don't have to be right. You don't have to be right. You just have to learn to be, to sit in the discomfort for a while, to let it ruminate, to let it teach you all that it needs to teach you, and then you can let it go and step into your individual power. So with that, here's this week's episode. I hope you all enjoy it. And I'm wishing you a lovely week. If you guys are like me, then you need to get the best sleep possible. Not only the best sleep possible, but you need to have as much energy as possible. And that's where Blue Blocks comes in. Blue light damages our eyes and leads to digital eye strain. Some symptoms of digital eye strain are blurred vision, headaches, and dry or watery eyes. For some, this could even cause heightened anxiety, depression, and overall low energy. That was my experience. I noticed that I was feeling sluggish all throughout the day because I was picking up my phone first thing in the morning and looking right into its blue light. We're surrounded by blue light all the time. And so I can't stress enough the importance of taking care of our eyes and our bodies with Blue Blocks. Blue Blocks was created to fix the problems and block out the blue lights with evidence-backed high-quality lenses. Unlike other types of blue light glasses, Blue Blocks are backed by the latest science and made under optics laboratory conditions in Australia. The founders were unhappy with the quality and the lack of science behind some of the leading blue light blocking glasses brands, so they decided to make their own. Blue Blocks was created to change this with high quality lenses for daytime, nighttime, and for color therapy, exactly in line with the suggested peer review and academic literature. They have over 20 frames in the latest fashion trends and come in prescription, non-prescription, and readers. Blue Blocks can turn almost any pair of glasses into custom blue blockers. They simply take your existing glasses and fit them with their lenses so you can have peace of mind knowing your Blue Blocks will fit you correctly and have the pair that's right for you and your needs. Get your energy back, sleep better, and block out the unhealthy effects of blue light with Blue Blocks. Go to Blue Blocks today and get free shipping worldwide and 15% off with the code reality. That's blue, B-L-U, blocks, B-L-O-X.com and use the code reality for 15% off. You got what I need. 
Hi, I'm Elizabeth Kotz. And I'm Stephanie Sambari, and we are the hosts of That's So Retrograde. Heard of us? For the past 200 and some episodes, we've been trying to figure out what the hell wellness is. We have inspiring and fun conversations with all types of amazing people, from healers to comedians to whatever's in between. We're five years in, but we're just getting started. So hop on board every Thursday to join the party and route to living your best life. And don't forget your cannabis. Or to check us out on Instagram at So Retrograde. That's right. Bye. See you there. I love the transition from Harvard grad lawyer to having a badass podcast and helping people achieve their best life. (laughs) Normal career path. That's (laughs) what you do. How do you, and I mean, how did that happen? Let's start there. Um, yeah, it was not my my original like ten year plan. Um, so <laughs> I was a uh, kind of women's rights lawyer, reproductive rights lawyer. I've, I've been a professional feminist one way or another, kind of my whole life. And I wasn't not I was not planning to become a life coach, or I would not have spent all that time in law school. Um, but and money and money, not that too. <laughs> it was not a cheap, not a cheap gig. N- no, not at that school, no, especially. Yeah, um, and just you know, sort of soul crushing. Also, but um, I was always very interested in self help and psychology and yoga and meditation. I think just some of us are like, even from a young age, are just kind of like, there's got to be a way to like be a human that just feels a little bit better than that. Right? Just feels like some people are just going through life being like, this is life, and then some of us are like, there has got to be some way of understanding what's happening or like some way of being in the world that is not so overwhelming. We're just, you know. I don't love the term seeker because it makes me feel like you'd imagine I'm wearing like a white flowy gown following a guru around, which is not my style. But I just had always had that interest. And then I really um, had worked with a couple of life coaches and I'd obviously been to therapy. I had like done all the things, none of which were all that effective for me. And I ended up finding my current teacher and mentor's work, which, you know, it's like all about how the right person explains things in the right way that clicks for your brain. Like, I think a lot of us are teaching pretty enduring wisdom through the I ages. Say this the same, I say, you know, a lot of us out here, we're saying the same thing for totally. whatever you guys are gravitating towards me because I'm saying it in yes. a certain way that's just, that feels good to your soul. Totally. And I tell new coaches that all the time where they're like, well, I don't know anything new. And I'm like, no, it's all just None of like, us know anything yeah, new. how to have a feeling and do yes. something with your brain. Like people have been working <laughs> on this for thousands of years. It's just your people need to hear it from you. My people need to hear it from me, you know. And so for whatever reason, like at the right time, you're ready to hear, the right teacher appears, it all comes together for you. And so I had that experience with my teacher and I was just applying it to my own life. I actually, my last job, my last real job before having my own business was um, running a think tank at Columbia Law School. So I was not like looking to become a coach. I was on the path becoming a law professor, but the work just changed my life so much. And I realized that I wanted to share it with other people. And I started to see that like, although all the premises are the same that we're all teaching. There was a kind of niche that I wanted to fill. There was like a group of people, basically kind of smart, professional women, and especially women who identify as feminists, where there wasn't, nobody was kind of taking the work to them and talking about it in a way that resonated with them. That was the kind of person I was. I think we're all teaching to like former versions of ourselves, kind of. Those are the people who connect with us, right? And so, I, you know... I wish I could say I, like, did a 10-point plan, but really I just – I came to a – I was kind of lucky that life forced me to a decision point because 
if you want to become a law professor, you have to go on the academic market. And it's this like huge undertaking where you have to go fly all around the country and give all these job talk interviews. And then, you know, you have to move to Kansas and teach torts for two years. Like you have to, it's a big process. And I was sort of at this decision point of like, once I started thinking maybe I wanted to become a coach, it was like, it doesn't make any sense to go through this whole thing, move to Kansas, teach torts for two years, then quit and become a life coach. So I, I am really actually glad. I don't know if I would have jumped as soon as I did, but I just became so obvious that it would, didn't make any sense to like invest another five years in this career if I was going to leave it. So it speaks to who you are as a person and your tenacity for life and your just resilience and that fighter spirit to go, I've spent all this time and money and dedicated so many years of my life to this work, but I feel a calling in my heart. My my soul is singing to help women, specifically women, career women who need my support. And I'm just going to drop everything that I've learned <laughs> for all these years to become a coach and to start a podcast that's become super successful, but you had no idea that that would be the case. Yeah, that was not the, yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> I'd like to tell it like that was a story and it just was like this shining moment of the sun coming down, but mostly I felt like dying and throwing up for like two years. Um, but yeah, I think I was willing to move. The big difference, I think, between people who accomplish what they want to accomplish and who don't is the willingness to be uncomfortable. Like, yes. When you talk about following your dream, it's like people think it should feel good. And then if it doesn't feel good, they're like, oh, maybe it's not really my dream or I shouldn't do it or I'm not cut out for it. I'm like, no, it felt terrible for at least three years. <laughs> I say <laughs> this all the good. time, this this shift. I was a stay-at-home mom before I started this podcast. And I felt literally like I the last two years, it's been like, it feels like dying <laughs> inside <laughs> of me. But with the intention of rebirthing something beautiful totally. yeah. and out of this dying, this stress, this anxiety, this turmoil, this internal, like, you know, I feel like I'm in the middle of the ocean. It's just throwing me around. Um, I birthed this podcast and a book and now my own super successful online coaching program and all of these things. And it's like you have to go through those dark night of the soul moments and you have to be willing to sit in those mm -hmm. for sometimes a really long time before you can get to the other side. Totally. Like think about physical pregnancy. It's not just like, oh, I woke up and then I had a baby and it was great, right? You have like you have to go through all the physical discomfort and the changes and the morning six and then you have to give birth. Like it's a yeah. big messy process. But we think somehow if it's yeah, like something intellectual or creative we're birthing, it shouldn't feel like that. And here's the worst news. If you succeed, it just means you get to keep doing, doing that over, over and over, over again. again. <laughs> like it's not. <laughs> it's just you're just signing up for a lifetime of like feeling like you're going to die, having like two weeks that feel good, and then feeling like you're going to die again. So, you know, like don't become an entrepreneur. Don't become a creative. Don't try to create or birth something if you're not up for that because that's what it's going to feel like. Giving back is something that's really near and dear to my heart, especially when it deals with addiction. Addiction right now is an epidemic that is rocking our country, and Clean Cause is on a mission to support recovery in America. Clean Cause beverages are an organic, 
sparkling yerba mate that contain 160 milligrams of better-for-you caffeine. Clean-caused drinks provide a smooth sailing, pick-me-up, and sustained energy without the crash or jitters. It's great for keeping focus at work, boosting your workout, and to keep up with the kids. They have eight super-refreshing, low-to-no-calorie, low-to-no-sugar flavors, including blackberry, watermelon, mint, peach, and cherry lime. Clean Cause is available nationwide at Whole Foods, on Amazon, or at cleancause.com. I really, really love this company, especially because they are on a mission, and I'm right there with them. To date, Clean has granted over 1,500 sober living scholarships, representing more than $750,000. That's something that I can get behind. Right now, our listeners can take 20% off your next purchase at cleancause.com using code reality. Every purchase makes a difference in supporting addiction recovery. That's cleancause.com using the code reality. I love though, you know, you had talked about how since you were younger, you had this passion for feminism and and to be fighting for um, women's issues and social justice issues. And you're still doing that in your work. Can you explain, you know, how you transitioned that? Yeah, totally. I mean, that's what's so funny is like if you say to somebody like, oh, I was a law professor and I'm a life coach, it sounds like those things have nothing in common. But actually, a lot of it is similar. Like, I mean, teaching law is teaching people to think in a new way. That's really what law school does is like trains your brain to work a certain way. So you're it's very, you're like still teaching, I'm still teaching people to challenge their assumptions and to use, my form of coaching is like very logic oriented, partly because that's how my brain was trained through going through law school. So a lot of it is similar. Like I think I was always, even as a law professor, I was interested in kind of subversive work. Like how can we not just like, let's learn the rules and apply them, but like who made these rules and do these rules seem fair? And like, how do they impact people? And like, are they really logical? Like, let's pick them apart and see who benefits from them and what the impacts are. And that's now what I do with women and their brains because my work is very focused on, obviously, like, a brain is not neatly diagrammable. So, like, if we're working on your thought patterns, sure, it's going to be stuff from your family and maybe your religion or what you read growing up. There's a million influences that go in there. But I think what's unique about my work and the way that, to me, it is a feminist project is that you know, I think that there's at this point in society a pretty high level of awareness of the idea that, you know, our society is kind of male-dominated and a white supremacist society. You know, we have that the, that our society benefits some people and other people not as much. And it was created by some groups of people. And so, of course, naturally, they like made it in their image to their benefit, yeah. right? And um, still to this day, yeah. there's very little diversity. I mean, I remember looking at that diagram um, it was in one of the hearings and the Republican Party was just like all white uh-huh. males. There's like two or three women. Right, exactly. <laughs> and then you looked at the Democratic right. side and there's so much diver- so much more diversity. Totally. There's still work to go. Totally. Yeah. And you absorb those messages. So we sort of understand intellectually that those messages are out there. But what I think there hasn't been enough work on is, OK, how do those messages impact your brain and like even your neural development and how you learn to think about yourself? And I think for me, the big insight that brought it together for me was that, you know, if what you heard in your head was like Mitch McConnell's voice saying something sexist, you would sort of be able to identify it and be like, oh, that's not my thought. I was taught that. I'm not going to listen to it. But that's not what happens. Like you absorb 
all this messaging, and then it comes out as your own voice. So your own voice in your head doesn't say to you, like, without a man, you're nothing. Like, you know, right? Like, that's kind of the message you've absorbed. But what your own voice just says to you is like, well, I don't know. Like, everybody else seems to have a partner. There might be something wrong with you, right? Yeah. It's that those messages come out in our own voice, and so they sound so real and true to us, and that— you know, I think I spent the first part of my career doing a lot of work on all this external stuff, like what's the legal policy and what are the laws and how do we need to change that? And obviously, I think that work is important and there are a lot of amazing people doing it who are better suited to it than I was. But we're not really doing enough work on how has it impacted the way we think. And I truly believe that even if if we could snap our fingers and tomorrow there was perfect representation of everybody on every corporate board and in every room— If the women in that room are still having thoughts of imposter syndrome and thoughts that they're not smart enough, and right, then it's going to be better, but it's not really going to solve our problem. So we have to do that internal work, too. Let's talk about imposter syndrome. Yes. I love that you dive into this. Give us your kind of your rundown on that. So I think the, you know, sort of definition is like a thought, pat. what I would call just a collection of thoughts or a thought pattern that you somehow aren't qualified for—it's usually professional, right? It's like I'm not good enough or smart enough or educated enough. I'm somehow unqualified for this job that I have or this position that I have or to go for the one I want, right? It's just this general belief. Like I used to literally have thoughts that people were going to like find out that I shouldn't have gotten the job, you know, right? And I have Mm -hmm. like every credential you could want, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know— I even felt that way about motherhood. Like I have not— I don't know who gave me this. <laughs> Is somebody going to come check on this? Now that I'm in the this? throes of this, you know, like, should someone be checking on my children? Like, totally. like what's the deal? Yeah, like, am I qualified yes. to be a parent? Am I being yes. a good enough parent? Like, do I know enough things about how to be a good enough parent, right? Like, yeah, yeah it can no be anything. No one gives you a manual for this shit, that's right. for sure. Right, right, So it can really be about anything. But there is this funny kind of this weird belief about being like, yeah, a fraud or an imposter being found out that like you're somehow not what you've represented yourself to be or other people think you are. But of course, it's always just, you know, unless you lied on your resume, (laughs) you haven't misrepresented yourself. You are your children's mother. Like you did, right? Have your job history, whatever it is. And so I work with women a lot on this. And one of the things that I always come back to is like, okay, if you haven't lied about who you are, then you're just being yourself, right? You're just being you. So how can that be fraudulent, right? Mm-hmm. There's there's no such thing. It's really just a version of I'm not good enough and other people will figure that out. Yeah. And that fear, those fears can be so crippling. Totally. Yeah. And they can, you know, literally hold us back from achieving the things that we really want to achieve in in our lives. And I think for women, so many of us have these feelings too of I need a man. I need support. I need I can't do this on my own. I know that for me starting this company that's all women, you know, my my team when I wrote my book, all of the things, yep. you know, I really had this feel, feeling and for a moment there of like can we really do this? Mm-hmm. And I realized, wow, that's a belief system that we're not capable and I'm like, okay, well then there comes in the tools, which I feel like so many people don't have and and need, where it's like, well, where did this originate from? Mm-hmm. And is this true? Mm-hmm. Is what I'm thinking real? And so oftentimes it's not. I just, 
had that, you know, program, like you said, that programming. Y'all know that I have nothing against Western medicine, but when it comes to me and my health, I found that going the more natural route has really helped me to heal. That's where Himalaya comes in. Himalaya is a 90-year-old company, and it's bringing a new age of clinically studied Ayurvedic wellness to over 100 countries worldwide. Himalaya is still family-owned and is passionate about formulating herbal supplements and plant-based personal care products that unlock the healing wisdom of herbs. One of their products that is helping me navigate through my daily stress and anxiety is ashwagandha. Now, what is ashwagandha, you might be asking? Well, in ancient times, ashwagandha was considered the king of all Ayurvedic herbs, and it's used for a wide variety of conditions. In functional medicine today, we harness the power primarily to help our bodies adapt to stress so we can feel calm and balanced. Ashwagandha is an adaptogenic herb designed to help your body better adapt to stress, gives you the energy boost that you need without the stimulating effects to your heart and supports your adrenal glands for normal levels of cortisol. That's your stress hormones. Why am I supporting Himalaya ashwagandha? Well, because it's organic and non-GMO. It contains no binders or fillers. What you get in each caplet is 100% ashwagandha. Support for stress relief is just one capsule a day, clinically validated for safety and efficacy. Stress less and find calm with Himalaya Ashwagandha. Get 20% off your first purchase. Check out the show notes for more details on this episode's sponsorship with Himalaya. Now back to the show. I've dived into this a couple of times on the podcast, but for anybody who who isn't familiar with subconscious belief systems, I feel like we should do like a little bit of a breakdown. Your subconscious belief systems develop in early childhood and they're a product of the things that you saw and heard. And I explain it as like, it's a product of our environment. We don't even realize it's happening to us. And then one day in our preteen years, we kind of wake up to the fact that we have an inner dialogue and thoughts that we're thinking, you know, mm-hmm. and I and I can remember the first time I thought about this when... I was maybe 12 and I was in the shower and I had gotten in a fight with my friend and I was just replaying the thought out and I was like, oh, wait, like I'm fighting with myself in the (laughs) the shower (laughs) right now. Um, So, you know, my kind of quick gist of this is that our subconscious belief systems become our thoughts and our thoughts become the words that we speak and the words we speak literally become our reality because they affect our relationships and the people that we're talking to and and the truths that we're speaking into our lives. So when we don't advocate for ourselves at work because the inner child in us, that subconscious belief system is I'm unworthy of a raise, it's literally affecting every aspect of our lives. Totally. And we just make it keep coming true, right? So it's like our thought is I'm unworthy, so we don't ask for a raise, so we don't ever get one. Other people do and get them. And then our brain says, I told you you were unworthy. Look, those other people got a raise, right? We're like constantly looking for evidence as cognitive bias to prove to ourselves that our existing stories are true, right? And so that to me, that was part of what I found really mind-blowing about this form of the of the work that I teach is like really being able to break down like, 
oh, it's not just like vague manifesting somehow. I can like actually see how when I have this thought and I feel this way, then I act this way. And then this is the result I get. And then my brain just interprets that to be even more evidence. I mean, that's what's so crazy about our brains is our brains are like, I know you're miserable, but I'd rather be right than change this, right? (laughs) Like our brains would rather believe we're right about our worst beliefs about ourselves then be, it makes our brains so nervous to think they might be wrong, right? So destabilizing. So we would just much rather cling to all the negative beliefs we have and keep finding more and more evidence for them and just constantly writing that story. It's like you might be three degrees off at the beginning, but by the time your brain has finished with like just finding evidence for that story, now you're like 180 degrees off from reality. Yeah. And same can be said for relationships too, our Mm -hmm. belief systems about the partners that we attract in our lives. And I say often like these people are mirrors for us, but really Mm -hmm. there are people that we're picking in Mm -hmm. order to like work out our you know, undealt with psycho babble. You and know, we're until... telling ourselves a story about them. <clears throat> yes. You know, like some we're not always perceiving them accurately. Like if you have a story that your partners never love you enough, you could be with somebody who loves you more than they've ever loved anybody else. And your thought will still be it's not enough. Yes. I was listening to your podcast. I'm going to put it in the show notes so everyone can go listen. Um, Unfuck Your Brain. (laughs) The title is everything for me. (laughs) I just really love that. I was listening to this most recent episode where you were talking about silver Mm -hmm. linings and positive spin. Oh, my God. Please just break it down because (laughs) I was listening to this going, my mind is blown Mm -hmm. right now. Yeah. So the idea is like I think that um, positive thinking gets a bad rap sometimes because people misunderstand it and misapply it. And so what we think that means is – We take a thought we have about, like, why something's terrible, and then we just try to put, like, a positive spin on it, right? So that's why I call it a silver lining. It's like if your thought is my partner doesn't love me enough, right, that's your negative thought. You try to put a positive spin on it. You you sort of keep your belief that they don't love you enough, and then you're like, well, the positive spin is, like – this is going to give me a chance to find a partner who does love me more. Like, this is an opportunity for me to stand up for myself, right? You're, like, trying to – put the silver lining on it, but you're never questioning your original premise, right? Or if your thought is like, my boss is toxic and crazy, and then you try to find the silver lining or put the positive spin on it, and you're like, okay, well, my boss is toxic and crazy, but, you know, this is going to be a good opportunity for me to learn how to identify. This is identify. just a stepping stone yeah. or whatever it or might like, be. Yeah. I, or even like, but my colleagues are good. It's like, you're assuming the truth of your original negative thought, and then you're trying to, like, I call it, like, spackling. You're trying to, like, spackle on some gratitude or positive spin or whatever. And it's not the worst thing in the world. It's better than just thinking your negative thought, maybe. Sometimes you get some relief that way, and you might feel more resilient, which is important. But to me, the real work is stay with that original thought and really sit with seeing how it's an optional description of something, right? So it's not a true, you're just assuming it's true, but the, in the way that I teach, which is fairly radical, it's n- it's never true. It's just your thought. There's no such thing as another toxic person. There's no such thing as like a job being toxic, right? And so if that's your original thought, you miss a lot of opportunity to truly see your own subjective interpretations of things when you just believe them and try to just like put a positive spin on it rather than sitting, we always just want to get away from our discomfort, right? So we're just trying to feel better about it. But what if you really sat with the thought, my boss is crazy and toxic, and you looked at how that thought made you feel and you watched your brain constantly scanning for more evidence of it, and you really got to know 
what that thought was producing for you in your life. That is so much more useful learning. And, you know, the work that I teach is a lot about recognizing that things outside of ourselves are neutral until we decide to have a thought about them. Like the human mind is what makes up good, bad, positive, negative, valuable, right? It's like a tree does not have a th- idea that your boss is toxic. It's a human concept that you came, we came up with. And so for me, a lot of the work is how do we get perspective on that and be able to observe those thoughts and not attach to them? And if you're constantly just trying to believe that thought and then sprinkle on some positive, you're missing the opportunity to really engage with what's much more destabilizing but much more transformative, which is that your original thought is totally optional and you keep thinking it and creating your own suffering. Wow. My mind is like (laughs) (laughs) blown right now. Um, I think it's a natural stage, I should say. Like I think the like silver lining, positive thinking spin, it's like a natural stage in thought work when you start to engage with your thoughts. It's like the first step. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's just – it's never going to be that effective. Even if you just think about it like if you make it a compound thought, my boss is toxic, but I'm learning to stand up for myself. You will always still feel kind of terrible because you keep thinking the first thought first. Right. So if like each part of the thought causes a feeling, you keep thinking the part that causes the negative feeling. Then you think the thought, the part that you think will make you feel better, but you still keep repeating the first one. So it's like driving. And not only that, but maybe your boss is really toxic for you, right? So I would say no. There's no such thing. No, you'd say there's no such thing. There's no such thing. It's just an op. Now you can totally choose to keep thinking it. We all get to choose what to think. All of our human thoughts are made up. So your boss is neither toxic nor non-toxic. Your boss just exists. And then you have a thought that they're toxic and somebody else has a thought that they're not toxic. And we What can't... if your experience is that they're either being verbally abusive or, you know what I mean? But even those are our thoughts. And again, I'm not saying that we should never choose those or that we might not want to get another job. But I, for me, it's really like, let's go to the kind of radical philosophical level of it there's all of this is just human language that we've made up. Like we're never going to get a certified letter from the universe about who's actually toxic, right? Mm -hmm. Humans can disagree about anything. So I come from a Jewish family. And so, of course, when I first started teaching this work, all my relatives were like, but what about the Holocaust, right? Just like straight there, right? Like how can things not be objectively good or bad? Isn't the Holocaust obviously objectively terrible? I'm like, well, I don't, I mean, a lot of Germans thought it was a great idea. I'm not minimizing or dismissing the human suffering, but humans disagree about literally everything, including whether murdering each other is a good idea. That doesn't mean we don't have values. I personally am not a fan of murder and genocide. I don't commit them, and I would work to stop them, right? But when I believe that it's objectively bad and other people should agree with me, all that actually does is make me feel very angry that other people don't agree and feel very disempowered. It doesn't actually usually motivate me to take any productive action. So this is like a whole can of worms, but... I really believe that all of our thoughts are optional. The goal isn't to not have thoughts. Like, we might still choose to have them. I still choose to think genocide is bad. It was a bad idea. I don't, I don't want more of it. It's not something I want to create in the world. But I understand that that's an optional thought I have. Like, I'm very pragmatic. What is the thought producing for you? And part of the problem, especially with something like a boss being toxic or political injustice or whatever, is that People have this idea that thinking of it that way empowers them and will help them make change. But if you watch what happens, that's often not what happens. 
What happens is somebody just feels terrible every time they tell themselves their boss is toxic. It doesn't motivate them to find another job. It doesn't actually motivate them to change their life because what they've told themselves is that they're being poisoned and that they don't have any power. And so I always want to go back to when you think that, what are you doing and are we getting the result we want for your life? So I guess I would ask, like, what would what are the next steps then, though? Like, if you're working in an environment that you feel you come to the conclusion is no longer serving you, mm-hmm. then it's like, okay, it's time to look for another job? Or, like, what is the— Sure. I mean, I, I generally teach unless you are in—everybody has to determine what this means for themselves, right? I'm not saying, like, if your boss is trying to murder you, you shouldn't leave the building, right? <laughs> like, or <laughs> physical safety, for sure. Emotional safety varies a lot for different people, what constitutes feeling unsafe or not or what seems abusive to them or not. I think people have a lot of different thoughts about that when we're not talking about the physical. But if you are not in really harm's way, I always recommend learning to love or at least accept where you are before you leave it because your brain is going to go with you, Mm -hmm. right? I think we all have that friend or we are that friend who like – keeps leaving one relationship or one job for another, and then shockingly they have another terrible boss and another terrible partner. You're not going to get any argument from me yeah. that that <laughs> sitting in the discomfort and being willing to do the self-reflection of like, okay, I am the common denominator in all of these situations <laughs> right. um, and is not extremely get, beneficial. Yeah, yeah, and you get—I see both happen. Like sometimes when people do this work, they're like, oh, actually I like this job. It's fine. And sometimes they're like, no, I really, for whatever reason, you know, I think that I could do more good somewhere else or there's, you know, behavior going on here that I think is unethical that I don't want to be part of. So I am going to leave. But it's not it's never about what's the action you're going to take. People take action all the time from like agitated emotions they haven't sorted out and get negative results from doing that. Right. I don't think my job is my job is never to tell you whether or not you should leave your job. I have no idea. It's your life. My job is just to show you the way your mind is working Mm -hmm. and show you that when you are very attached to your story, it does not help you see clearly. And most of the time, it does not help you take any action. The people who are the most committed to their stories about how everything is against them are the people who end up taking the least action in their lives. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I can relate to that for a lot. I I wrote a book this last year and I was writing about my story and and my experience and and all of that. And I realized that a lot of the pain that I was experiencing was because I was literally allowing myself to just relive in that space and, and to continue on with that narrative of, you know, I'm someone who suffers. Mm-hmm. I'm someone who has had so many negative experiences in their life. And, you know, I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop and all of these things. And so it was an interesting experience because in the early parts of my sobriety, I really feel like I had moved on from that. And then here I was writing this book. And then I was like, oh, no, this is very clear to me. Like mm-hmm. all of this chaos is being done to me. And then I kind of started to wake up and go, As a child, yes. But as an adult, you know, you have Mm. a responsibility to take take that responsibility for your life and to heal from it and to deal with it. And you cannot stick with this belief system of like, oh, well, the the other shoe's going to drop any Mm -hmm. second, you know? 
Totally. Yeah. When you're a child, you can't control a lot of what happens to you, and that's when those beliefs get formed. But when you're an adult, I think when you just keep repeating those thoughts, you're just right. You make them more and more true for yourself. Um, but something you said, there was something I was going to say. It's gone. If it's genius, it'll come back. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> no, I'm sure it was. Yeah, no, that was just, it was such an interesting experience that last year. And I and I realized in, in my relationships with my parents and just the way I was feeling about them, all of this like rage and anger and all of this stuff. And um, and I had people in my in my life who kept like validating it, totally. like just revalid. Well, she is, and she is. And, That's what we think know. is supportive. We're yeah. like, I should tell them that their painful, painful <laughs> thoughts are right. Are right. Yeah. But then you get to a certain point, and you go, Well, what if they are? And then what? Right. So what? You know what I yeah. mean? And it's like, so what? Do, so what do we do from here? Totally. Like, where do we go? You know? And or if we just keep reaffirming our belief systems about our situations and other people for long enough, then we're just going to continue to experience those over and over and over again. Totally. We're just, I mean, that's what's so crazy about the past, right? It literally doesn't exist, but we keep thinking about it and then we keep recreating the experience for ourselves. And I think that whole, yeah, you can always find people to tell you that your terrible thoughts are true. But like, if you were punching yourself in the face, literally your friends wouldn't be like, keep going. That's good. (laughs) That looks good. Right. But when but we emotionally punch ourselves unnecessarily and are and we think that it's supportive to validate, right? And I think that part of the reason we get so caught in that and we get so caught in our stories about other people doing us wrong is that we think the only option we believe something bad has had see, this is what's wrong with believing things are truly bad, quote unquote. If something bad happened, then someone has to be to blame. And we mm. think it has to be the other person or it has to be us. Right. And so I think that's partly why we get so attached to our stories, like about our parents or about whoever, is because we're like, well, this suffering happened, this bad thing happened. If a bad thing happened, who are we going to blame for the bad thing? If I don't believe it's them, then I'm subconsciously worried it was me. Like I was the problem. So I have to believe they were the problem. And like the only way out of that back and forth trap that I have found is to at least contemplate the possibility that nothing, that what happened. That it just is. That it just, just is. is. It's your story about think, it that makes it painful. I think as someone who incurred a lot of sexual abuse, I ha- I've had a really hard time with that. Mm-hmm. I say this on a regular basis, and it is true. All of the things that have happened to me in this world, you know, my heroin addiction and going to jail and all of the physical abuse and violence and alcoholic parents and far from a perfect, mm-hmm. you know, picture-perfect childhood— I wouldn't have it any other way because mm-hmm. I do believe it's been my greatest teacher and the path towards empathy and love oh. and all of the experiences that I have today. I think on a lot of it, I can be very neutral, mm-hmm. but I do acknowledge that there is definitely still growth to getting to that place like we were just saying of it just is what it is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like such the beautiful thing about being a human is you always get to decide, right? Like I don't – I think sometimes people misinterpret my work or work like this to mean like I'm telling you like you should believe it's neutral, right? Or like it would be better if you did. It's like we we always get to decide. Like everybody – I just want my students to know that they get to decide. But they might decide to think like my childhood was terrible and it fucked me up. And, like, you're totally allowed to, right? Everybody has that – not you, you. You know, just, like, one in general. Like, we have the human autonomy to decide what story we want to tell. I just think that the work is in seeing that there are multiple possible stories. Even when we're not able to shift it yet, 
that it is a story, right? And like, maybe we want to keep it for now, forever. Maybe we'll change our mind in the future. Like there really is no, I've had people, I've had clients who come through the process and then they're like, you know what? Like that is, I am keeping those thoughts. You know, this thing happened. It was terrible. It hurt me in this way. I want to keep it. I'm like, do it. Like you get to decide. As I think, like I said, you know, the, the feelings around, I don't, you know, the fact that I used to be a twice convicted felon, very neutral about that. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay. And you know what I mean? It's right. not gonna stop me in any place in my mm-hmm. life, my experience going to jail, my heroin addiction, the negative choices that I harmful choices that I made during that time period as a result. Like I and I think it's easier for me in that because I can see cause and effect, right? Mm-hmm. Like the cause of the the ch- the childhood created the mm-hmm. monster <laughs> you know what i mean so i have empathy mm-hmm. for that monster mm-hmm. um yeah i think i just i think i just have a really and maybe i'll hit you up but i have a really <laughs> hard time feeling neutral like my childhood sexual abuse was brutal mm-hmm. it started when i was 5 and like my feelings about that despite the fact that i've done a lot of work on forgiveness um, f- towards that person, not saying that what happened was okay, but that I that I forgive you in order to set myself free. Mm-hmm. I've done a lot of that work, but yeah, I just still feel like you know that was a horrendous, totally. horrendous situation. Yeah, I don't think the goal, and I just so I just want to be clear. I don't think the goal is to feel neutral. Mm. I think there's a difference between what seems to me like a I mean, I just, I, it's like I want to use the word epistemological, but I just mean like a, a truth about like that the concepts of morality are human concepts that we made up, mm. which is what I believe. Now, some people don't believe that. Some people believe they came from God and God exists and gave us the concepts and so they're objectively true. That's not my belief, but if that works for somebody else, great, right? Just there's like a big difference between saying things are neutral in the sense that it's a human mind that creates the meaning of them, Mm. that's different from like, we should all just feel neutral, which is not at all what I'm teaching, right? And I think that for me, like one of the most powerful parts of thought work is the work that can be done around post-traumatic resiliency and growth, right? Like this thing happens to you, especially when you're a child and don't have, you know, your brain's not even fully developed yet, right? Your body's not developed. Like these things happen. A lot of people go through a lot of suffering as children. And I don't think the goal is like, be glad that that happened. Like if somebody decides to feel that way, they're totally allowed to, right? Like, but they don't, I don't think that you're supposed to or you should, or that's the goal, right? I think sometimes the the work that can be most powerful is in seeing like that thing happened and I believe that it was terrible and I'm keeping that belief, but it doesn't have to define me for the rest of my Mm. life, right? That we hear so much about post-traumatic stress disorder, and that's real. There's also post-traumatic growth and resiliency that's also real. There's also studies on that, yeah. right? We only, we hear so much about one and not the other. And I think the difference is the support that you get after the experience mm-hmm. and having somebody who can walk through that with you. And you know what I mean? It's like the post-traumatic stress disorder happens when we're not supported in the way that we needed to have been after it happens. And 
then we can get into a whole thing about the limbic system and the brain and where it stores trauma and all that stuff. And that's the conversation for another time. But it's true. Like what you're saying is that that the growth that comes out of that, that resilience, that determination to help people from that, that empathy, all of that stuff is very real. And I do see that as a gift. Yeah, or even for people to know it's an option. You know, I just think like we just hear so often that like if this thing happened to you, then you have to be damaged for the rest of your life, right? Mm-hmm. And I just think it's like sometimes in the name of helping people, I think we teach them things that are disempowering, you know? Um, and I see this happen like with structural political stuff too where we want to talk about diversity and inclusion and disadvantage and we want to be real about those things. But then we just sort of leave the conversation that, you know, we're like, okay, well— Women make less than men, so uh, that's that, right? Yeah. As opposed to like, okay, but how are we going to try to empower people? We do need to do all the structural work, and how are we going to empower people, people individually? Yeah. And I think especially that like transition from when you're a child, you can't control those things that happen to you, and you can't control how the stress affects your brain and the trauma affects your brain. Now that you're an adult, it's just a gift to know that like you can have some impact on that if you want. I don't think the goal, like, this work to me is very Buddhist. Like, pain is inevitable, right? It's yep. the suffering. It's suffering, optional. Yep. It's not like yep. so, you know. The dukkha, the darkness, the hardships, it's going right, to happen. Yeah, right. Some of us are going to have PTSD. Yep. Some of us are going to experience trauma. Some of us are going to impact our brains. Whatever human life, whatever human experience we're having out of the huge variety of them, all of which involve suffering, how do we want to relate to that? suffering, right? So that's why it's not like feeling neutral is the goal. Goal is like, how can I be more skillful and gentle with my own human experience of suffering, which Mm. we all go through? Yeah, absolutely. So for all of my listeners who are out there who are on the healing path or looking into, you know, different modalities, I think that this is a great place to start. Her podcast is called Unfuck Your Brain. Um, If you look it up, the you is a star. (laughs) You can search whatever. Does it it still come up? We did an episode with the full word for that purpose. Okay, (laughs) perfect. Yeah, so you can find it. And yeah, where else can everybody find you and learn more? And the podcast is the best place to start. Mm -hmm. You can always just go to unfuckyourbrain.com also. Okay, awesome. And are you on Instagram? Oh, yeah, I am on Instagram. Uh, My name will be in the show notes. The last name is hard to spell. Okay, yes, it is. That truth. It's true. It's <laughs> at Cara Lowenthal. The good yes. news is there's only one of me. So even if you butcher my last name, I'll probably my come pop up. up. Yeah. yeah. I will make sure to put all of this in the show notes, you guys. Thank you for listening. And yeah, we appreciate your support of the show and have a great week. This week's affirmation is I acknowledge my self-worth and my confidence is rising. And so it is. If you enjoyed this week's episode, do me a favor, head over to the podcast app and make sure to subscribe to us, rate us and leave a review. We have new episodes every Monday and you can follow along with us on Instagram at Recovering From Reality or visit our website at recoveringfromreality.com. 